0: This is a Solito Media Original Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galby Podcast. This is Fender Jackson. I recorded this conversation with Seamus Finneran, a music promoter, back in mid-May this year. So, other things came onto my lap in the meantime, like book launches, festivals, concerts, all of which had a deadline in which to get out so Seamus's project got pushed to the side also it's about two hours long so I found it daunting to edit this because what would I cut out and in the end I decided to keep it all pretty much I took out the ums and ams and coughs and stuff like that but yeah it's pretty much all here because Seamus' story is a fascinating one. You know the way Forrest Gump was just a regular guy who ended up on TV with John Lennon? Well, Seamus' story is a bit like that as well. He was just a boron player from Ross Common, and he ended up selling out the Sydney Opera House twice. He's acted as a music promoter and his list of clientele reads like a who's who in the traditional world of music. Just to give a flavor of some of the names, I'll read out Kieran Halpin, Jackie Daly, Maura O'Keefe, Lunasa, in fact, he put Lunasa together. Paul Brady, Martin Hayes, Dennis Cahill, Shugal Nifty, Seamus Begley and Jim Murray, nine times. Break and Trad, The Rambling Boys, Caper Kelly, Martin Carthy and Norma Watterson, Dick Gohan, Mary Coughlan four times, Balfour Toujour, Susan O'Neill, and Sharon Shannon, 12 times. There's loads more. And as I say, it's a fascinating story. Another reason why I haven't been able to get this out in time is because, well, I'm a busy guy. This is not my day job. My main day job is interviewing older people about their life stories as a gift for their future generations or for their friends. So if this service is appealing to you, please feel free to get in touch with me. I can be contacted on salthillmedia.com. This podcast has never made one penny yet. So if you want to support it, you can share it with other people. Particularly if you think it might be useful for them. There's no sponsorship in this podcast either. So everything is done because I want to do it. All these conversations are happening because I'm genuinely interested in the person I'm talking to. If there's one modus operandi for this podcast, it's to be a positive impact in Galway. Okay, so let's go to that conversation now. Band, wrap it up. This is The Galway Podcast. Hello. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, My
1: name is Seamus Finnern. Uh, What do I do? I am semi-retired. I am a music promoter in Australia. I have relocated from Sydney to Galway. I also have Another job where I am a, a consultant in a health, safety, environment, and quality. I do a little bit of remote consulting from Galway back to Australia on some uh, major infrastructure projects that are going on there, where I'm consulting to a subcontractor.
0: When did you leave Ireland for Australia? February 1983.
1: I remember the day I left Ireland, it was minus 14 in Dublin and it was 44 degrees when I arrived in Melbourne. And it was a very significant day because uh, there was a major dust storm that came in over the city and people thought it was the end of the world. And I thought it was just a normal event. In fact, I was getting homesick as I was flying in because everything was brown. I didn't see any green anywhere. And uh, I was at my, my uncle and cousin's place and they're having a barbecue when this big dark brown cloud came in. They were all a bit freaked out. I said we've never seen this before, but it was actually the topsoil from a region called the Mallee, which is in northern Victoria, is what was coming in. I said this is the desert coming down, and I said the desert is just up the road there. You know, I just flew over it a few minutes ago. So, because um, I thought it was it was a normal event, you know, there's a storm and there's dust because all is dust, but in in this case, it was a, it was a first event
0: that they had seen. It sounds like a scene from Interstellar. There's a big dust storm that comes in and looks like the apocalypse.
1: Yeah, so this looks like uh, like a dark brown version of a big wave that you would see off Hawaii or South Africa, that kind of rolling wave coming at you. That's what it looked like. And then this blocked out the sun, and at half one in the afternoon, the city was dark and... Apparently, people were calling up their, their partners and saying, I'm really sorry, you know, for all the things I've done to you. The telephone system was in a meltdown. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> what pulled you to Australia back in the 83 then?
1: Before I went to Australia, I spent some time in the Merchant Navy as a marine engineer. I had spent a lot of time, well, on the west coast of America and Canada and in Japan and Korea and the Philippines. So basically it was to use the term bulk cargo and we were, the company was already shipping and it was doing charters from Asia to West Coast America and also to Europe. And any time that I joined a ship or left a ship in Asia, it had either come from Australia and they were all saying what a fantastic time they had down there, or I was leaving a ship that was going to Australia and I never actually um, made it down there. So... I left the Merchant Navy and uh, I was living in Galway again and I was in Dublin and um, I said I'll just go into the Australian embassy and see what the story is about a visa and they said you know we'd probably give you a residency. So I said I'll just apply for that and see what happens and a year and a half later I had a resident visa to go to Australia and I was living in Dublin at the time I was working for a subsidiary of Aer Lingus. Dublin at that time for me wasn't a really nice nice place, nineteen, you know, eighty-one, eighty-two, and I thought, you know what, I'll I'll just see what Australia is like. So I've got a resident visa, so it's my flexibility on that. I'll go down, I'll stay a year and I'll see what happens. And um if I like it, I might stay a bit longer. I won't be under pressure to leave. So that's what attracted me to Australia. And then uh, my mum um has an uncle in uh, in Melbourne so she got in touch with him and so I had a, had a base so and did you work then when I got to Australia mm. uh, well I spent three months lying on the beach and looking for work but at that time in 1983 apart from the dust storm um sometime later was Ash Wednesday and all of the outer regions of Melbourne was on fire. In fact, I think it was on fire all the way from Melbourne to Adelaide. So that was the ash winds to bushfires. So if you can imagine being on the beach and embers falling out of the sky and smoke and ash, it was weird, you know. So I've gone from uh, the green grass fields of Ireland to what appears to be a desert, to dust storms, to horrific fires. Burning around the the outer rim of the of the Melbourne Basin, if you know what I mean. So yeah, so I was also looking for work, and three months later I got a job. It was called Telecom then, so I got a job with them uh, as as a technical officer in their building and engineering division. So that was yeah, it was the start of me getting a job
0: in Australia and kind of settling in. I should have asked before. Were you from in Ireland? Ruscommon. not Awfully, not Awfully, no. <laughs> so there's a book out, um, the, Shared Notes. It's called by um, Martin Hayes. Martin Hayes, and you're you're mentioned in it uh, as coming from County Awfully, but that's yeah. a, that's a typo, obviously. It's actually a typo, yeah. it's so, yeah. common. Yeah. We'll revisit that later, I'm sure. So um, yeah, you got into the um, telecoms industry uh, in after three months uh, living in Australia which came first the health and safety or the the music health and safety came first yeah yeah
1: i i am a traveler right and and i always applied for jobs that i could travel in and um so i was working for telecom which is now telstra and they had set up a, a safety and environment division and one of the jobs was to go around surveying all of their buildings in victoria and I thought that's a good job, you know, I can can do a bit of traveling and see the country. And it's a new field that we're getting into. So that's actually how I got into it. And when I was with them, uh, we used to use a consultancy firm to do um, sample analysis and air monitoring for us. And the, the managing director of the company one day says, do you want to come and work for us? So that's how I kind of progressed along that path. The music came later. But when I lived in Melbourne, it had a great folk music scene then through the, the Melbourne Folk Club. Uh, there's an area of Melbourne called Brunswick, and it was a very strong music scene there, um, kind of a multicultural music scene. Um, it was, it's a very strong Greek community. There was a, a pub I used to go to every Sunday night called The Retreat, and there was a fantastic Greek, Greek band uh, playing there. And we used to go to we used to go to that that used to happen late at night, and there was also a very strong trad Irish music scene around um, Clifton Hill, Uh it was a suburb there, at Carlton. So Clifton Hill, Fitzroy, Carlton, Brunswick was kind of the the music area of Melbourne. And uh, as I said, we used to go to the uh, the Melbourne Folk Club.
0: So the Melbourne Folk Club, did they play traditional Irish music uh, mostly or was it other types of folk music? Other
1: type of folk music. Um, There was a lot of musicians that had come from Scotland and England and Ireland. I noticed in the folk club scene in Australia, there was probably a very strong uh, Scottish and English influence there uh, and I guess in in the makeup of the the members and the um, the committee of those clubs, yeah. And yeah, a fair few Irish. So they would have weekly or monthly folk club scene where uh, you paid to go to the the gig, right? And then, you know, they would have every now and again, maybe once a year and they would have a, a touring musician from Scotland or England. Uh, I remember going to see Hamish Moore once and uh, I remember going to see Martin Carthy and you know, that sort of um, scene. Um, but mostly it would have been local musicians that were performing in the folk clubs. And and then, uh, I guess, outside of that then you had the trad Irish people, because it was a very strong trad Irish scene in Melbourne, which I definitely know it came out of the 50s uh, from a lot of people that had immigrated there, from Clare especially, this uh, famous family called the... The Fitzgeralds, Joe Fitzgerald, Paddy Fitzgerald, uh, Johnny Fitzgerald and uh, I can't remember the other ones in the family now, but they were the core of the trad Irish music scene in Melbourne. And then there was a lot of Australian musicians who had learned of them, who were also, uh, you know, were of Irish parents or Irish grandparents or whatever that had actually, you know, learned um, Irish music and they were very, very strong Uh, players on the scene back then in the 80s
0: and how did you get involved then in the music scene yourself
1: it was kind of a a little um, pathway out of the sessions that i was going to in in melbourne i moved to san francisco so i was living there and what
0: year was this about
1: so this is now 92 i ended up in seattle over new year I had a friend living in uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, a guy called Seamus Egan, and he was asked to fill in in this band in Seattle called the Suffering Gales, because uh, their two of their fiddle players uh, couldn't perform; they were away for an, on holidays, right? So they asked Seamus. Um, Seamus couldn't make it. I played baron. He said to me, "Why don't you go and I'll call them and you know you can play with them." So I said, "Okay." So I went up to Seattle and I met up with. Um, Willie Creeden is the guy's name. I think it stayed in his house. And then we went uh, to this gig and I met Martin Hayes. We play the gig. In fact, uh, I was told later that Michael Flatley was the dancer at the gig that we are doing. That was in uh, New Year's Eve. And in March, I got a call from Martin's manager, Helen uh, Barmerito, And she said, would you be interested in coming to the Plough and Stars? Martin is doing a gig with... Uh, Sean Turrell, the late Sean Turrell, and, uh, and Davy Spillane. So I said, yeah, yeah. So I went along and I played with this. And then we did a, a gig at the um, Celtic Festival, the San Francisco Celtic Festival, which was run by a guy who lived here in Galway. He was from in Simon, uh, the late Eddie Stack, and also a guy from Derry, uh, Peter Peter O'Neill. Uh, They were, I guess, the co-producers and co-promoters of the San Francisco Celtic Festival. And then there was another gig in the Plough and Stars. And after it, I said to Martin, I said, "Uh, have you ever been to Australia? And he says, no. And I said, well, I lived down in Melbourne for a good few years. And I know lots of people in in the music scene. And maybe I could put a tour together of Australia. So I went about putting a tour together for Martin and Randall Bay's Uh, and myself um, to go to Australia in 2004. Sorry, that was uh, 1994. And I didn't realize that uh, a few months later or actually maybe a year later, I had put together a tour in Australia from my bedroom in San Francisco by phone and fax back then, and um, Martin and I went out uh, to Australia. And uh, but Randall Bays uh, couldn't make the tour. He was the guitarist, couldn't make the tour because he had commitments um, family commitments and, and, uh, and that in, in, um, in Oregon. So we picked up a guitarist in in Melbourne and we picked up another guitarist in, uh, in Sydney for the tour. And um, yeah, we, we played three. We played Port Ferry Folk Festival, the Brunswick Music Festival. The uh, National Celtic Festival in in Geelong, and the National Folk Festival in Canberra. So they were um, some significant festivals that we had uh, secured, and we also um, played uh, some gigs in between, some filler in gigs and some some good gigs and some not so good gigs. But you know we we we, we, we did it, and um, at the end of the tour. Um, Martin said to me, he said, you know, that was what you did there was, do you know what you did? And I said, no, he said you put together a really successful tour. So I had been really excited about the tour that we did and and the success of it. So it was the first time that I was actually in the thick of something where this is an international tour that we've just done.
0: How do you think he defined a successful tour?
1: I guess um, the, the, the audience uh, response to the the performances, the um, the audiences that we, we got at the tour, or sorry, that we got to each of those gigs and that. Um, so I guess musically, artistically successful is where Martin would have been coming from. And then the, the fact that we, we did actually um, pull audiences. Can we get down
0: to the nuts and bolts as to what you actually did? Did you book the venue? Did you promote it on the radio station? So what, what did you actually do there? I worked with... Uh, helen bamarita who was martin's
1: manager at the time so so i guess i was the the conduit and the enabler to contact the festivals and my contacts in australia to get this going and helen would have done all the administration side of it right so i had the local knowledge of how things worked and um one uh one of the the, uh, the successes of the tour was that Martin Martin's record company was Green Linnet, and they hired a publicist in Australia. So the publicist was able to uh, talk to the you know um, the ABC in Australia, uh, get interviews. Was able to talk to um, the key um, papers like the Age in Melbourne and the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, which would have a, you know, arts and entertainment section, able to do interviews and reviews of the performances. So it was going in at a higher level now that we had a, a, a publicist that worked for a record company, and that publicist was a fairly high-profile publicist that had worked with lots of artists from, you name it, you know, she had worked with them. Yeah, it, it opened a whole, uh, a whole new uh, world In uh, in my mind, anyway, as to how tours worked and and what needed to be done.
0: Did you know what you were doing strategically or did it come naturally or were you finding your way in the dark or were you getting information as you went along? How how do you think you did your part?
1: So it came naturally because of kind of my, my local knowledge of what other people were doing, you know, um, so I, I kind of knew the scene, as I said, you know, the folk scene, how that worked. Um, I didn't know it intimately, but you know, over the years I've gone, I, I knew you know how it worked, um, and um, so it did come natural naturally to me. But it was that tour that actually gave me the broader knowledge of how future tours uh, were going to work, or how I could you know work and plan future tours. So then after the tour we went back to san francisco and then i had a you know the opportunity to reflect on what had happened so th- that was in march uh, we got back i guess in the middle of april and then it was uh, i came to ireland for june july august and then i was able to reflect back on my life in san francisco america and and australia so i was able to kind of Refine where I wanted to go, and and um, Australia was the place that I wanted to go back to. So I went back in '95, and um, and then I started doing little tours. Um, um, some people had contacted me asking me, you know, do you want to do a tour? Because they'd heard of the success of the tour with Martin Hayes. So I kind of, you know, um, sorry, in '95 you went back. I went back to live in Australia in 95 and I moved to Sydney rather than Melbourne.
0: Okay.
1: Now, that was a strategic move because <laughs> I knew that uh, the Melbourne uh, music scene was was established and that there was, there was key people there uh, who were agents and promoters anyway. But I knew that there was a, a, a vacuum in Sydney. So that's why I based myself there in, in uh, January 1995. But in actual fact, it was, was a December Ninety uh, four, uh, I came out for the, the Woodford uh, Folk Festival, which is in Queensland. Um, that festival starts on the the 27th of December every year and finishes on the 1st of January. The program director of that festival at the time was Elish O'Connor, who actually is living in Kinvara at the moment. She moved she moved back to, to Ireland and is living in Kinvara. And um, so Elish said, you know, come out to the festival. So I um, coincided my return uh, to living in Australia by coming out and starting at the, the Woodford Folk Festival. So there I had a, a great time, met lots of artists and then I made my way down to Sydney and stayed with a friend of mine for six months and then settled in. And um, I started uh, thinking about how I was going to uh, start my Promoting career of Irish music. As it turns out, um, I was contacted uh, by somebody that I had met at Woodford and they said that uh, Kieran Halpin uh, was touring and um, he was looking for somebody to put together some uh, some gigs for him. So uh, Kieran is from uh, Dundalk, I think, and um, he came out with a piano player called. I think it was Aid uh, Kelly or something like that. Although I'm not quite sure if that was his name. So I put together uh, some gigs in Sydney, up in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains, uh, Canberra, and Wollongong. So it wasn't a big, a big tour, but it was enough to to start me um, uh, looking at venues and um, and booking artists and and promoting promoting concerts. And then the the next time uh, was uh, Alicia Connor contacted me and she said that uh, she had Jackie Daly and Mauro Keefe uh, coming out for the Woodford Folk Festival in um, the end of December 95, uh, 96. And would I be interested in putting on some concerts in Sydney? So I did. Um, and uh, I used a venue which was, uh, uh, was called the, the Three Weeds. That stage, it, w- it was one of the one of the venues that was, that was on the touring circuit of sort of contemporary musicians. So uh, I, I I put that concert on there, and uh, and one in Canberra as well. And then the next uh, tour that I did was uh, Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill. So that was a, a fairly big tour. It was in March uh, of two thousand and six. And uh, that was a very successful tour. 2006. Wrong again. That was in uh, that, w- that was in March
0: 1996. And this is why you look so young is because <laughs> you're constantly living ten years behind yourself. That's good. <laughs> That's, true. That's what it is.
1: Yeah. I um, hadn't thought about that one before. So, yeah, that was a very, very successful tour with, uh, uh, with Martin and Dennis. And then that year, I had um, there was a big tour that used to happen in Australia uh, through the, the late eighties and into the nineties. It was called the Guinness Tour. Uh, there was a, a promoter in Australia called John Nichols, and um, he had teamed up with Don Illy, who was the artistic, I guess, the artistic director, and uh, I guess Donald would put together the, the program. So it 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 was uh, always a big lineup of musicians, the concert would go on for uh, four hours. Sometimes those concerts used to go on for two days because the, the programs
0: were, were was the lineup was so the, big. The same musicians playing for four hours. No,
1: no. They was like, like Oh, there's different
0: acts. Come, yeah, Different acts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you know, uh, I, I, sorry, I've seen Prince where he did play gigs for four hours. Yeah. So, so.
1: in this particular year, um, it was Sharon Shannon. Altan, possibly Mary Black, I'm not sure. So yeah, there was there was there's a, always a big lineup of, of, of musicians, you know.
0: And so your relationship was mostly with Eilish and not with the artists, is that correct?
1: So in that case, it was Eilish uh, knew that I was enthusiastic about promoting music and developing a uh, uh, promoting career in Australia. Yeah, so she had started to uh, put me in contact with with the people that she was bringing up for the festival. And then I was, you know, adding on the sideshows. Can you explain what that, again, the nuts and bolts of what you were doing there? So I'd be booking the venues and uh, doing the publicity and the promoting for the gig. And what would that entail, the promotion? So what did that entail? Um, well, in some times I would work in with a local a uh, promoter that had a uh, had a mailing list back in those days, or you would always work with a venue that had a focus. So, for example, I used the the Three Weeds in Sydney, that always had a focus where people would always look to see what was on there in that kind of genre. Also, in the promotion, uh, would be that the publicity where uh, you would know, contact the local ABC radio to see if they'd be interested in doing an interview uh, with the artists you contact the local paper to see if they would be interested in doing an interview on the grounds that, you know, you'd also be running an advert. And uh, at the time, there was um, a local Irish paper in Australia called the Irish Echo, so they would always be very favourable to doing an interview and running a piece and doing an editorial and doing an advert. But promotion back then would be, as I said, you know, mailing list, hard copy mailing lists, handing out flyers, you know, at pubs or at other gigs. And, you know, you'd you'd strategically look to see who was playing in town where you would have an audience that would be interested in what you were doing. So, you know, you'd be flyering that gig.
0: And so you didn't really, I'm guessing here, you didn't necessarily have the relationship with the local newspapers or the radios and the television people. Is that something you... Just called called them up and said, "I am booking this artist coming out at this tour. I need to talk to X, Y, and Z person."
1: No, I would have a publicist that would do that. You know, I'd always be on the road with the with the musicians, and uh, and going to those interviews. So then I got to know the the presenters and the producers. Um, but we always used a publicist. Um, but in some cases, I could actually call the. the uh, the producer and say I've got somebody coming to town would you be interested
0: and through time were you able to cut the publicist out as you developed a relationship
1: no I always hired a publicist unless it was a very small tour where there was just one or two gigs or there was there was a tour where there was just one gig in Sydney or but generally I would hire a publicist yeah
0: because that would eat up the time the pub, doing that legwork. I assume, and your time is better spent elsewhere. Is that correct?
1: Well, more so, the publicist would have a good relationship with the uh, with the media, with, with the presenters and producers. Yeah, you would have more. Um, you'd have a more success rate in, in getting an interview with the press or the radio station because of the relationship the publicist had with the media. <laughs>
0: Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms.
1: Perhaps you've questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was Grandad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be, all with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late.
0: Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is The Galway Podcast. I used to be a project manager and so I'm seeing your job more as a program manager who's running a, a suite of projects. And exactly. So the, the publicist would, would have been the project manager, you would have been the program manager. Is that how I'm seeing it now?
1: Oh, the publicist would be the publicist. I'd be actually be the program manager and the project manager, mm. right? Um, because I would be, you know, even though I'd be engaging a publicist, you know, I'd be engaging a sound engineer, I'd be, booking a venue, I'd be taking adverts out in papers, I'd be printing posters. So, like, I was kind of the, the project manager and program manager with all these kind of subcontractors working for me, mm-hmm. um, just to use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because there's, there's lots of parts to uh, putting together a tour and promoting a gig. You know, there's, there's the venue the staff at the venue or the booking agent at the venue, there's the sound engineer at the venue, there is the publicity and marketing that the venue does, there's the publicity and marketing that you're going to do, there's the the printing shop that you're going to set up a relationship with to get your printing done, there is the, the ground transport, uh, there is the internal flights, sometimes it's the international flights, and then, of course, you've got the... Um, the artistic directors or the program directors of festivals that you have to engage with to get a booking at, you know, major festivals and some smaller festivals. So you have to work in with them. Then you have to coordinate your tour. Logistically, you have to put everything together. So I'm a one man band that's, that, that's engaging with all of these other um, disciplines and subcontractors to pull a whole production together.
0: Where do you see your greatest satisfaction coming from? And because it's a multifaceted role, so where did you get the most satisfaction out of? And where did you get the most frustration out of?
1: So the most satisfaction or the greatest satisfaction is being on the road on the tour, when you can actually see um, the uh, the result of all the work that you put in. The frustration is. Waiting on commitments from festivals to say, yep, you know, we're going to book you for that fee because you're, you're kind of in a state of flux for a long time trying to lay down a tour because the anchors are the major festivals. It's, they're the anchor points of your tour. So you're waiting for them to confirm before you can book your own um, shows that you're going to promote, we'll say, uh, in the lead up to those festivals and after those festivals. And you know, in I guess in the in the, in the environments around where those festivals are, so you know you you need to work out a, a strategic logistical plan, so you're not you're you're not backtracking and going all over the place here. You know, you're uh, you're going in the one direction. So, for example, um what I've been doing lately, and one example is the the last tour with uh, Sharon Shannon. In 2018, we started in Western Australia. Uh, we started in uh, in Perth and we did a concert in Fremantle, did a concert in Albany, we did a concert in Manjura. They're all in the Western Australia. And then we came east. So the tour started in Western Australia and we ended up in Womad, New Zealand. So we just kept moving east. Mm. So there's no backtracking. And in that we took in all the major festivals. So logistically coordinating that for your tour plan um that makes it makes it possible to actually do it without doubling back and you know um adding additional travel cost to your um
0: to your tour. So you're talking about the major festivals as the main the main targets, if you will, for the touring. Now does that deliver the maximum return in terms of finance for the artist or in terms of publicity for the artist or a mixture of both? Both,
1: yeah. Um financially the major festivals like Womad, um, Port Ferry, the National Folk Festival and that, you know, they will be your um your anchor points and, and your significant fees. That's your guarantee for your tour. Or you might sell the act to a theatre, but the rest of it I would be promoting myself. So all the other shows where it booked the venue, that's all, shall we say, you're taking the risk in, in sort of um collaboration uh with the artists you know you're 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 taking your risk in those venues because you are you're booking the venue you're promoting your shows and um the result is the audience that turns up so yeah the festivals are the anchor point they are the the financial uh underwriting of the tour yeah so then you you plan around that
0: and can i ask money i mean in terms of what an, what a fee for booking a top artist would be if you want it to be a margin if you don't want to an answer that's fine so how does that differ from a venue of a couple of thousand to a festival
1: uh look the, the fees they vary right um, and it it depends on the on the, the numbers in the band uh, you know a trio will obviously be different to a you know a five piece or six piece that so yeah, so fees vary at festivals. You know, they, they can vary from, from five thousand
0: to to thirty thousand. Yeah, um, sorry, Australian dollars. Australian dollars, yeah, yeah. And that's for a festival. That's for a festival, yeah. And then for a smaller venue. Well, for a smaller venue, um,
1: for example, uh, when you say smaller venues, they would be, we'll say, a thousand capacity theatre. Yeah. You know, if you were to sell a show. 10,000, somewhere about there, Australian dollars. Um, with smaller venues where you're doing your own promotion, you'll be, you'd be you be in this sort of, again, depending on the act, but you'd be in around the, the um, 200 to 500 capacity. So you're in your kind of your jazz club kind of circuit where, you know, a lot of jazz touring acts would play or a lot of local jazz acts would play and a lot of um shall we say contemporary folk you know, people like um like like Steve Earle or John Prine or let's say to you some Irish names some like Damien Dempsey or that so that kind of audience and um that size capacity of venue so you'd be doing your own promotion there so that could return something from 5000 to 15 20000
0: yeah. And and but that's that's gross for to be split amongst the whole project and the, all the crew and the artists and so on.
1: Yeah. So at the end of the tour, you know, there's a pool of money that uh, you know you have to work out where all this money is going to go. There'll be a significant amount of uh, on road costs in that, and uh, and then there'll be a significant amount of. um international travel and all that. So all that gets factored in and you have a you have a final settlement figure that gets paid out to the artist and the promoter takes their percentage cut and the artists get the rest and um, then they divide that out among whatever
0: the, the arrangements are. The artist gets the rest so so the variable fee is the artist's fee and uh, everybody else has got a set fee. Is that how it works? Correct, yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So you mentioned jazz uh, venues. Uh, that brings us neatly, maybe. At what point does your work end up in the jazz venues? Well,
1: the ja- huh? actually, the jazz thing started. was I uh, said so I was living in Sydney. There's a jazz venue called The Basement. And I was touring uh, Martin and Dennis in 1996. And I was looking for a venue. And I had been going to The Basement um, to see um, gigs there. And I thought this would be a really good venue for something like Martin and Dennis Cahill. And um, and I thought, the thing about the jazz venue is that you've got an established, um, an established infrastructure, if you know what I mean. Um, you've got a venue that has really good production. You've got a venue that's professionally run. You've got a venue that's got marketing. You've got a, an arts appreciating or a music appreciating audience that goes there because they know that there's always something good on there. And so I, I decided to explore um, those jazz venues. There was the basement in, in Sydney. There was the Continental in Melbourne. There was Tillys in Canberra. Uh, so there was the um, the, the Governor High Martian in Adelaide. So I explored, but um, non concerts in those. And it worked. Uh, they were, you know, the dinner and show format. Um, Ronnie Scott style. The Ronnie Scott style, exactly. Yeah, and um, it kind of moved. It moved it up a level. In fact, it moved it up several levels from your um, from your your folk club or your your Irish pub. It it moved it up into a more sophisticated level of um, of how the music was presented, and then of course. You know, you got the, the listening audience, and you've got a concert where the publicists can um, call in the reviewers to review your um, review your concert and write an article. So that's uh, write a review in in the um, in the papers. Was
0: that so, a, was that a tough sell? I mean, because you you're moving into a more slick operation all round. It seems you know the infrastructure is there, the um the promotions there the finance is greater the reviews maybe wider reaching or whatever so what what's the resistance towards that point of entry from your side
1: well i remember when i when i um first mentioned this to some people they said it's, it's not going to work right you know you're going to take traditional irish music to a jazz venue it, it's just it's just not going to work it's just not the audience but what i was explaining to them is that Well, no, what's happening here is I'm actually putting the artists on stage in a jazz venue. And then my job is to put an audience in front of the artists. Because festivals, when festivals program, they're actually putting artists in front of an audience. But in the case of promoting a concert where you're doing it, we'll say in a jazz club, uh, you are actually putting an audience in front of the artists. So you're not actually going for the audience that was there for that jazz gig when it was there. You're looking for a wider audience as well. So you're not specifically looking for an Irish audience. You're looking for a music appreciating audience now, whether that comes from the pool of, you know, the Irish uh, diaspora that's into traditional Irish music or Irish folk music or the jazz people that are into it or the country people that are into it or whatever, You, you, you know, you're after a broader audience. That's going to come to um, a venue where um, where the music is is presented in a, in a I guess in a more um, sophisticated way because it's in the jazz club. Yeah,
0: looking at that from the outside, it looks like you might be pricing people out. Was there w- w- did the artists then do want to do uh, events where it was more um, cost effective for people who had less income?
1: Well, the ticket price is higher when you go to those venues, right? So um certainly was some comments you know that you know that's an expensive ticket you know um but then the quality of the concert is a lot more superior than if you're going to the more cheaper kind of venue so you get more quality and there is a you know a bit of resistance to paying those fees but that eventually goes away when they realize the quality of
0: you know what they're getting. So the quality being the better venue. Right. Well, exactly. The better and, and venue, better, better production,
1: sound. better performance by the artists Cause um, you know, they're, they're the central figure and, um, and, and it is the, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a music and stage focused um, a space that you're in.
0: I know what you mean. I mean, living in Galway, I've popped into some bars and the sound system, really needs updated in some of these venues and then you go into somewhere where they've invested in sound equipment and yeah, the pre- ticket prices are higher, it's not our free walk-in gig uh, and yeah, a lot to be said for that I think Yeah yeah. yeah. I'm bouncing off your journey so we sort of branched, I, I, I took you off road there yeah. uh, to get into all of that discussion but is there anything else you want to say there? One of the
1: most exciting things that I was involved in was Lunasa Um, And that was in 96, Uh, I went to a gig in Sydney, which was a kind of a side gig, splinter gig from the Guinness tour. Uh, And it was in this venue called The Three Weeds, where I had put on Kieran Halpin. And the gig was um, Altan and Sharon Shannon. And at the end of the gig, I was talking to Trevor Hutchinson. It was the bass player at the time in Sharon's uh, band. And I was telling them that I had come back to Australia from San Francisco and that I was looking at getting into uh, doing music promotion. And I was very, very interested in the sound and what Trevor and Donna Hennessy were were doing, the combination between the double bass and the acoustic guitar. And I was going, you know what? You could fit that rhythm into an awful lot of things. right? Um, you could put an awful lot of musicians in between those two guys. This is a really new sound, what they were doing. So I said to Trevor, you know, have you got any projects in mind? Because it, it was just, you know, some random idea that I had, you know. Do you have any projects in mind you're thinking about doing? He says, no, but, you know, that's a good idea of what you're thinking about. And then I was back in Ireland during the summer of 96 and I caught up with Trevor and he goes, yeah. He said, we um, got this. Band is called the Sean Smith Band. It's myself, Donna, Sean Smith, who's a fiddle player in Galway. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to do some tours. He says, uh, Michael McGoldrick is going to be in the band as well. And John McSherry. So yeah, we had this conversation and I, I said to Trevor, you know, there's, there's only three things that I need uh, to do a tour in Australia. I had refined it down to three things. I need music. So, obviously, a CD, I need an image, and I need a bio. And if I have those three things, I can actually promote a concert. Then I met Trevor in Dublin. We had a discussion about the possibilities. And then I went back to Australia, and we had a phone hookup. And um, Trevor said, yeah, the Sean Smith Band. I said, you know, it's not going to work. You need a name. So they came up with Lunasa. I went, perfect. Perfect. This is a success story. I hope that um, the Lunasa guys hear this story, but they know it anyway. So I had um, put on a tour in March uh, 1997 for Lunasa. They came to the other end of the world, to Australia, a band that nobody had ever heard of before. They sent me the, uh, the music, right, and I took it to a pressing plant where we manufactured the CD, that morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, I went to the pressing plant, picked up 300 CDs, just the CDs in one box. There was a box of um, the cases in another box and I brought them to my, my house. And Lunas arrived in that morning into the airport with the artwork, the booklet. We went around to the publicist uh, who had engaged and we had put together a really, really impressive brochure for the media of the band. Right, And we met the publicist and then we drove up to Katoomba uh, to the Blue Mountains Music Festival. Uh, There was Sean Smith, Trevor Hutchinson, Donna Hennessy and Kevin Crawford was actually the flute player, Michael McGoldrick, uh, couldn't make the tour, even though the image in the photograph was Michael McGoldrick. And we ended up the mountains, and on the way up, we were assembling the CDs. You know, it was a little assembly line. You know, we were putting in the, the, the artwork into the cases and putting in the, the disc and putting in the, the booklet. And,
0: All over a glass of wine, I'm sure, or beer. Yeah. This is
1: on the drive up. Oh, drive in, up. The drive up in the van, Yeah, right? And uh, so... <laughs>
0: So you had a factory line <laughs> in the van, exactly, Oh, my God.
1: exactly, and um, and then uh, Lunasa played uh, their first gig in Australia at the Blue Mountains Folk Festival, and it went off, and the audience was just blown away by these guys. And so how,
0: how did you sell this gig to the audience? I mean, no, I
1: sold the gig to the festival.
0: How did oh, the festival sold to the festival? That's an interesting one. Yeah.
1: So. so the festival, um, they, uh, that was the second year of um, the festival. Bob, Bob Charter was the, the, the festival owner and director. He had the festival in Katoomba, and he also owned a hotel uh, where everybody was accommodated. And there was also a venue in the hotel. And then there was a school next to that hotel. And uh, there was a, an RSL club next to the Returned Servicemen's League club next to the, the, uh, the hotel. So it was all kind of fairly central. And there was a there was a marquee in the car park and there was another marquee in the school grounds. So this was the second year of Bob's festival and he was looking for a, a, a big name. And I said, Bob, I've got a big name. These guys. Now, these guys have never been heard of before. So if you want a big name for your festival, book these guys. So it, it, was, it was kind of an action reaction. Bob didn't know who they were, but he trusted me to say, you know, you got a big name here. These guys are big.
0: But, but, but nobody had ever heard of them before. But the, he didn't know that. He didn't know that. Did you tell them that they were big back in Ireland or something? No, I just told them they were big. <laughs> <laughs>
1: because I knew that I had the caliber of musicians. Right. Right. And I knew that the performance was going to be fantastic. I just had imagined that's what it's going to be. Mm. Right. Because of, you know. The, who they the, were. Who they were. Mm. And the um, the brochure uh, that we put together from from the the bits and pieces of of bios that we got just made this look amazing or mm. sound amazing. Mm. You know, when you read, you just go, "I've oh, got to go and see these guys." Oh, were they headlining? They were, <laughs> <laughs> and the place went off. But the thing about it is, um, the publicist that had hired Gaynor Crawford, she she came up um for one of the concerts and she brought uh, a lady with her called jacelyn hall uh who used to um she was the, the the uh the presenter of the world music show on a station called triple j which was part of the abc so she was the um the world music guru or the most knowledgeable person that i've ever met in world music in 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 the abc at the time and she she came up and um, saw the gig and she was really, really impressed with the guys. So it went off. They sold lots of CDs. Uh, and then we went back to Sydney. We had a concert in that venue that I mentioned, the basement on the Thursday night. Went back to Sydney. On the Monday, we did an interview with uh, um, ABC TV, the 7.30 report, I think it was. Then... We did an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald, and then we did an interview with Jaslyn Hall on Triple J, the World Music Show. And we did uh, a gig on the Tuesday night up in the Central Coast in a theatre that I had sold the actor. And then there was another interview on, on that Tuesday before we went up to the, 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 um, the venue in the Central Coast, And on the Wednesday evening, the basement called me and says, Seamus, can you send in your guest list? The concert is sold out. God. It's an unknown act. Right? It's sold out. Wow. And um, I had also booked the basement for either a fortnight or three weeks later as well on the Thursday night. So the, the publicist um, called out a reviewer called John Shand, and it was just such an amazing review. And I remember some of the lines in the review, you know, it doesn't matter if you have an, a record in the record stores. It doesn't matter if if you don't have a name in Australia. It doesn't matter if nobody's heard of you before. But this Irish group came from Australia, and on word of mouth alone, sold out. So that That's what happened. And, uh, of course, then... When we came back uh, three
0: weeks later to the basement, that was completely sold out. And what did you do in the meantime? Did you get gigs in the meantime? Well, in the
1: meantime, we did um, the, uh, the the Port Ferry Folk Festival again. We went to Port Fairy. Um, nobody had heard of the band, and the place went off. And it was it was funny. Um, I was I was selling CDs after the the concert outside the tent. So here we are. Like my stall was 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 too. Um, two wheelie bins with uh, the boxes, these long boxes of CDs, you know, and we're selling these CDs like for $30. The band come out and now we're mobbed by people and, you know, you're being handed $50 notes and you go, everybody has a $50 note. You haven't got change and there's a line of people. It was just mad, you know. (laughs) But that was, um, so we had an absolutely fantastic tour and the band really, really loved Australia and uh, it was so... It was such a such a successful tour. The so it's she, all
0: you, it's all your fault that Luna's exists. It's all my fault. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, do you think I was a highlight of your career? It
1: was one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That 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 launched me and Luna's. Right. Yeah, I love those guys. Mm. And um, yeah, and actually, we caught up there last Saturday week uh, at Munros. Um, But yeah, so that that gave me a real insight into how this thing works. And, you know, um, in one way, you know, there's no formula to this. Um, You cannot actually say, well, you know, this is the, um, um, you know, this is the strategy that makes this work. Because I I cannot really define what happened with Lunasa. And I was talking to... um, I was talking to the the owner of the basement and he said, it's all about the act at the end of the day, which is, that's number one. It's about the act, right? And if you have the right musicians, you have the right act, the audience will come.
0: Yeah, and, and th- whenever you're talking about CDs for $30, I'm, I'm just thinking 90s, you know, and yeah. it's very specific to that time. One of the questions I was going to ask you at the end, but I'll ask it to you now is, how is that... your your industry of promotion and so on how has it changed today so what would you do differently it's completely different today right completely different today than the
1: 90s and the early noughties how things were promoted right more difficult more easy just different it's completely different uh in in fact i'm kind of out of tune with it dem- out of date like if I could give you an example of in Sydney for're promoting a, a concert at the basement there's this there's, there's a formula in one way to what you would do to make that a success right so you have an album CD that's new album give it to the publicist the publicist sends that to a reviewer and the reviewer um, writes an article in the Sydney Morning Herald right. then um, you would take out an advert You would run poll posters, and so we'll say you do a run of 100 poll posters and then you would replenish them with another 100 a fortnight later. So you'd have a a lead in of, let's say, a month to your concert at the basement. So you'd have those in place and the tickets would start to sell. And the public would get an interview with the radio, get an interview with the paper. Right. So you have a review of the album, you can interview with the artists your poll posters, your flyers, and your advertising. And hopefully they'll get a radio interview when they arrive and the, the radio station will play the album. And that's not the way things work at the moment, because Sydney Morning Herald doesn't have, um, we just have the, the, uh, the Metro on, on, on a Friday, which gives you all the arts and entertainment that's happening in the city for the week. Sydney Morning Herald is now just one page for arts um the reviewers are not there you know they, they are um let's say um subcontractors to the editor if the editor decides to print but they're not employed by the paper like they used to be um the abc has a lot of their music programs axed and you're not going to get into the the commercial radio stations because that's all uh driven by the major record companies and the major media and um it's all the hits of the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, uh, the same old stuff. So it's difficult to get in there. So your your um, your media avenue it has shrunk a lot. Your poll posters only last a night because the council is going to take them down next day. Uh, advertising in the paper, not really done anymore. So all of those, uh, I guess, traditional outlets for promoting and marketing and and publicising have shrunk. It's now social media, so you need somebody who is, um, uh, you know, specialises in that uh, digital marketing of, you know, your act in social media. Uh, a lot of us, from what I can gather from um, a lot of artists' managers, is that it depends on the on the on the um, the downloads from the uh, digital service providers, those statistics. Is 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 how um, you know it's it's that's how audiences are targeted these days rather than the traditional way. So it's a whole new sort of digital promoting and marketing world. That I don't know how it works.
0: And I was listening to the news agents. I listen to a podcast quite a lot. It's the one with um, John Sopel and Emily Maitlis. Emily Maitlis was the lady who interviewed. Prince Andrew, and they were talking about in the olden days, they would get a phone call from um, the newsnight team um, or whatever because of what was on the news headlines the night before. And they're saying that that doesn't exist any. Well, it still does exist actually, but it's almost like the mainstream media is behind the curve in terms of what how the public is consuming news. So it seems like the model that you are in which you're operating is definitely outdated, you know, as you say, it's all social media. So the audience is driving the agenda in many ways. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure I'm sure record companies are probably able to buy downloads on Spotify or whatever. There must be some bots out there. I'm guessing, you know, that, that that's way somehow that must exist because there's a financial need for it. So if a record company has an artist they want to promote, they need to get downloads to drive that agenda on Spotify. Yeah, I'm guessing that must be the case. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Possibly, yeah. The second part of this conversation shall be published next week. This has been a Social Media original podcast and production.